Am I on? Hello, hello. Okay. This morning, we are moving along to the fourth century. I know it's your favorite century ever, fourth century. Um, it, it does seem to get a little more exciting in the fourth century, mainly because things that people are writing are, are much more clear to us. They, they relate to our day and age today as far as theology goes. It's a language we can understand, I, I would say. So you guys have been reading up on your church history, right? Everybody's buying more church history books. Good Christmas presents. Just get a stack of church history books for yourself, for your loved ones, for your kids. Reformation heroes, the books I mentioned last time. Um, so let me pray and we'll jump into the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. Lord, we are blessed to come this morning to study, to think about church history and the theological battles that went on, battles that clarified the language, the theology of what Scripture teaches. We're thankful today to be able to look back and and study because the writings of these men have been preserved throughout church history. Thank you most of all that there's been faithful people who seek the Scriptures, who don't go to the Pope, don't go to to some specific person, but seek the Bible for answers. And so let us do that today as we study church history. In Jesus' name, amen. Who can name one Nicene or post-Nicene father? If you can name one, I will... Yeah, I don't know what I'll give you. I'll bring you something next week. A book. Chris. Athanasius. Man, Chris wins all the prizes in here. You guys got to answer quickly. I think he won the last book giveaway. Athanasius. That's our first one to talk about, actually. So if you recall, we, we've so far looked at the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, the apostles. Then we looked at the first century, first and second century church fathers, uh, the, the ones who learned from the apostles. Guys like um, Polycarp, who learned from the Apostle John. And then we went into some of the early church heresies, and we spent a couple of classes on that. Uh, we also looked at the 2nd and 3rd century apologists. Those are the guys who defended the faith, especially to the Romans, trying to explain what Christianity was, trying to answer all the objections that were being thrown at Christianity. There were a few polemicists who were attacking uh, philosophy, and just some general theologians like Origen. And then we looked at the ten persecutions that the Roman Empire had brought against Christianity. Most of them being in Rome itself, but a few spreading empire-wide. And we saw the very last one. Who remembers the last emperor to persecute Christians? And 303... Anybody? For extra bonus points. Chris, do you even know that one? Diocletian. Diocletian. I remember Diocletian thought it would be great to split the empire east and west. And that's going to have implications in church history. He's also the last emperor to persecute Christians empire-wide. And he did, in his mind, a good job of it. Uh, Thankful to his uh, stepson there, uh, or adopted son, in uh, giving him a bad idea of what Christians were about, what they believed. And then we had the first Christian emperor. Who was he? Everybody knows this guy, right? Constantine, or Constantine, however you want to say it. Uh, Constantine is, is generally the way I say it. We, we're not quite sure how deep his faith was, or if it was genuine, based on some of the negatives, like killing his own family members and other things. But at the same time, he did bring about some good reform as far as no more persecutions. And Christianity was at least a lawful religion. It could be practiced without persecution. It was not the official religion, But the emperor is Christian. He made it lawful. And anybody who wants to be close to him is going to have more of a reason to be a Christian. It became very socially acceptable for the first time in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. And so government leaders started to uh, convert to Christianity. Ones who wanted to get a place in his court would convert to Christianity. And you even have bishops, which let's just call them the senior pastors. I know that's not exactly the, the right term, but just for conceptual thinking, the senior pastor of these churches were now being elevated by the emperor as he met with them 
and they became more and more famous. And so a lot of these guys we're going to look at are famous because of Constantine or his following emperors that associated with them. We need to talk just a bit about Constantine's moving the capital of the empire. The capital had always been in Rome, but uh, the emperors didn't really like Rome a whole lot at this point. You've got a million to four million people. Um, they're, they're dumping their uh, feces in the street. That's the, the latrine. Uh, dump it off the second floor. You would have to, as you walk down the street, dodge things that were flying down from the windows. Um, it smelled. There was a lot of peasants. There were a lot of riots, mobs. The emperors had to give them bread often and put them on the dole. That's where it actually comes from, the grain dole. That word is used in politics today. But um, basically make the populace happy. And if a plague broke out, Rome was not the place you'd want to be because everybody's living right next to each other and apartment buildings that would also burn up very easily. So emperors began to live outside of Rome, and that continues uh, long after Constantine. But he decided he was going to build a Christian city. He was going to rebuild an old city called Byzantium, and he renamed it when he built it Constantinople, or the city of Constantine. And this is going to be in the east, the capital of the empire. And then there's still Rome in the west. So remember, two rulers now, a ruler in the west and a ruler in the east. And they're going to sort of start thinking of their empire a little bit differently. Even though there's still Rome, Roman Empire. Rome's in the west. It's going to be more western thinking. It's going to be more Latinized. So we can relate to the West much easier as Americans because our culture comes from the West. Uh, the Constantinople in the East, that's the north of Egypt, Alexandria, that's uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Asia Minor, Greece. They're going to be Greek-speaking. So they're going to think more the way that the Greeks have always thought as far as concepts. And that's going to work its way into their theology over time. So today you have what's called the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Where did that difference start? It starts all the way back when the empire started thinking of itself as East and West. So more to come on that in the future. But the empire capital officially was, was moved to Constantinople, although Rome was still seen as the capital of the West. Constantinople was the Christian city, the the perfect city. It was protected for over a thousand years uh, past the time that the Western uh, Empire fell. And one of the reasons is, is because it was on a peninsula. So all you have to do is pretty much wall up a small section of land and then build some walls along the sea. But it's really hard to attack with a huge army from the sea. And so they were able to put walls, multiple layers of walls, that no one could get through until gunpowder was used and cannons were invented. Only huge cannonballs could knock down the walls of Constantinople. So here's a segment of the walls today, and I, I think there's three layers right there. So you have a wall within a wall within a wall. Even if you got through the first one, it's going to be very difficult to get through these bigger walls in the background. And while you're trying to break those down, you've got people throwing things at you and shooting things at you. So it was impregnable until cannons were used by the Muslims in um, 1453, which we'll get to that point in church history. So let's talk about what happened after Constantine, really during his life and, and after him for about the next hundred years. Uh, we have just a brief timeline. I, I know I promised you an early church father's timeline. I'm still working on that with some of my best artists in the family. You wouldn't want me to try to draw a timeline. But this is a, a sort of a line of where these men lived after 300. So the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, the apologists, they lived between the time of the apostles and roughly 300. Around 300... To 350, that's the Nicene period. And then after that, up to 500, is the post-Nicene. Post means after. What is Nicene? Nicene deals with the Council of Nicaea. And I've already mentioned it. We will look at that. Council of Nicaea is huge theologically. 
But instead of covering it in its chronological order, I want to group it with some of the other councils. So like we did with the heresies, we can just go through all the councils at once, or at least the first seven, and not have to keep jumping back to councils as we go. So Nicaea is huge. You can see it right there um, on the dot in the, between 300 and 350. I think the date's 323 if I'm, if I'm right. I'm just guessing, or not guessing, educated guess on that. Uh, we will come to the exact date and, and what they covered. The reason it's so big, though, is because it's settled in the true church who Christ is, theologically. We know the Bible has settled it for us forever because it tells us who Christ is. The problem is there's this heresy called Arianism. And Arianism had infected the churches. And so you didn't know when you met a Christian what he believed about Jesus. You'd have to talk to him. And often people were confused. Even true believers were confused. They didn't know who to listen to, who to believe. It's much like today. You know, if, if you're a new believer and you get on the internet, do you believe this guy, John MacArthur, you know, this old guy, he's got gray hair. You know, he's white. He's all these problems that are wrong with the world today, people say. And then you've got these cool sounding guys over here saying something else like Stephen Furtick. And you're a brand new believer. Who do you listen to? Who do you believe? Well, that would have been a new believer and the time that these debates were going on. So we're going to start with men like Eusebius. If you start at the bottom here, uh, Eusebius is going to be one of the first men. And these go in chronological order. So we're going to work all the way up to Augustine. So who was it? Chris, you said Athanasius. There's also men like Augustine or Augustine. If you're from Texas in the south, you say Augustine. But it's really Augustine if you want to sound very scholarly, very uh, academic. John Chrysostom, a great preacher. Jerome, who translated uh, a new translation of the Latin Bible. And the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory, Gregory, and Basil. And then there's a few others we'll look at, like Ambrose. So let's jump in. Athanasius is my favorite Nicene father. He's my favorite because he stood against the whole world that was basically Arian. So let's look at Athanasius. He lived from 296 to 373. Uh, He was the bishop or patriarch, however you want to term it, um, of Alexandria. Alexandria is the scholarly place of Christianity at this time. Rome is becoming more and more the place of, of Bible study, also Constantinople. But Alexandria was a major center for teaching, for training theologians. And just for access to scrolls and and different things that people would use to study. Now we already talked about some of the problems there. They taught allegorically. And uh, Athanasius is less allegorical than people like Origen. So it wasn't perfect by any means. And of course Alexandria will disappear from the map as far as a Christian city when the Muslims take it over. But at this point you could say I'll go to Rome. I'll go to Constantinople. I'll go to Jerusalem, I'll go to Antioch, or I'll go to Alexandria. They're all equal as far as major Christian centers where you could go and learn theology, get trained, talk to famous, even in that day, pastors. Much like we might want to go to Shepherd's Conference to hear big names preach, or uh, the G3 Conference. Well, these cities would hold these meetings of Uh, different pastors, and people would write letters there. Today, everybody thinks, oh, Rome's the center of the the Christian world and Roman Catholicism. But it wasn't always that way. So Athanasius was the main defender against Arianism. Arianism taught that the Son was not equal to the Father. And Athanasius said, no, he is identical in his essence to the Father. The Trinitarian view that the Bible teaches. But remember the Arians, after Arius, he said, Arius said, no, no, the Son is just slightly different. He's not exactly of the same substance. He's not exactly of the same essence as the Father. He's just similar. And remember, that was only one letter in Greek, the iota. One letter left out of a word, and it changes the definition. And so Athanasius said, no. That's not right. That's not biblical. And he wrote against the Arians. The Arians were a very large party of Christians. 
Now, Athanasius was very small. His enemies made fun of him for that. They called him the black dwarf, uh, probably because he was very dark and his skin tone being from northern Egypt and very short. And so they made fun of him. Uh, what's that black dwarf got to say now? But he was very sharp. He was very keen. You can read some of his writings today. Um, his most famous work today is probably On the Incarnation. And C.S. Lewis wrote a, a nice introduction to that in the 1950s or 60s. It's a really good uh, introduction, and it's worth reading. Although I don't recommend the, the book that's on the end of it. Usually they throw some things about uh, the monastic life and asceticism that Athanasius wrote. So he was a prolific writer, a skilled theologian. He was only a deacon whenever the Council of Nicaea went on. He was not a pastor. He was not training men for ministry. But he was holding an office in the church of deacon. He went to Nicaea, but he wasn't there speaking like a lot of the, the pastors, the bishops were. He spent most of his life fighting um, Arius and Arianism. He argued strongly in favor of the eternal sonship of Christ. Remember, Arius taught that Christ was not God, that he was created. As well as the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, Athanasius taught that. And uh, Arius denied both of those. But because he stood against Arianism, which was the most popular teaching of the day, even the emperors, the sons of Constantine and down the line, even some of them were very uh, much Arian in their theology, he became exiled over and over. So he became the bishop of the church in Alexandria in 33, uh, age of 33. And he was basically the bishop until he died. But look how many times he was kicked out. So uh, he becomes the bishop in 328. He's exiled eight years later. He gets to come back in 337. He's kicked out and sent away. Exiled means you got to go into the desert. Don't write anything. Don't preach anything. We don't want to hear from you, Athanasius. The government has ordered you to hush. And you'll be killed if you come back. So they would do this. They would send prominent leaders away that they didn't want to hear. Much like they do today. Except it's more subtle, right? Ban them from social media. Take their sermons off YouTube. Things like that. Um, again, restored in 346, exiled 356. Restored to 361, exiled. You can see how many times was he exiled here? Five times. Five times he was kicked out of his church, kicked out of his city, and made to go somewhere where he could uh, be forced to be quiet. He died in 373. So most of his writings have survived today. And they're either commentaries on the Bible or doctrinal works. Uh, I mentioned the one on the Incarnation. He also wrote on creation, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the work of Christ, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, he was the main guy writing against Arians, and so they focused their attack on him. If they could get Athanasius and prove him wrong, they could win the debate. Even after his death, they were still trying to attack his writings, his theology. But here's what's interesting. We think Arianism, that's heresy. The problem was, even after he died, it still was not defeated. Arianism was the most popular view. Because Arius would go around and he would sing these songs and teach them to his followers, who would then teach them to other people in these villages and cities. And they were songs about Arius's theology. And music, often people could sing long before they could write. And so music would be a way that they could accept this false teaching, this Arianism. But they didn't know it was false teaching because when you go to church in your village, you just go to church. You just go to the church that's there. And if it happens to be Arian, you don't know it because you've been going your whole life. And that's how Arianism continued to grow. If your emperor is Arian, then everybody wants to be that style of Christianity. When the barbarians come and they sack Rome and they start taking over parts of the Roman Empire, they are Christians too. But guess what kind of Christians the barbarians often are? Arians. So whoever's ruling often is an Arian. That becomes the predominant view. Even though the Council of Nicaea has determined that it's not biblical, hey, it's not politically expedient to be orthodox, to be biblical 
let's be Aryan and we can get a, a job in the government. We can get a promotion. We can get placed as the bishop of this church because we're Aryan in theology. So when he did die, there was plenty of momentum, though he, he had written the Council of Nicaea had been um, done. He had written all these books and there's momentum to uphold the truth. There's enough out there. The men after him would pick that up and continue to write against the Arianism. Uh, Am, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, Ambrose and Jerome, and then later Chrysostom. So these men were living at the end of Athanasius' life. Here's John Piper, by the way. He has a great set of books on some of these men from church history. Uh, I think it's five or six books, and he covers three men per book. He also has eventually had them all bound together into one hardback book. And he just does, he originally did a talk on these men from church history, all throughout church history, and then they've combined these into the books. Very easy to read, very accessible. Piper says, this was the war Athanasius fought for 45 years. It lasted all his life, but the orthodox outcome was just over the horizon when he died in 373. And under God, this outcome was owing to the courage and constancy and work and writing of Athanasius. No one comes close to his influence in the cause of biblical truth during his lifetime. In fact, it was said about him, Athanasius against the world, contra mundum, which is Latin for against the world. It was as if no one agreed with Athanasius that was well known, that was popular. He was the only one fighting for the truth and he was against the whole world. And you can imagine even people of his day saying, come on, Athanasius, you're the only one. You're the only one writing books. You're the only major teacher in the whole empire that still believes this silly stuff. Come on, come over to the Arian party. Come over to the Arian theology. You can be accepted by the political government. You can be well-liked by the people. Remember I told you about Santa Claus slapping Arius? Was that last week? We're not going to cover Santa Claus, uh, Nicholas of, I forget, the, 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 it's a small town in Asia Minor. Uh, he was at the Council of Nicaea. He didn't write a lot, say a lot, so we don't study him. But he's the guy that, that punched Arius, supposedly. He slapped him in the face. And so the joke is, you know, Santa Claus, the guy who is later invented after um, Nicholas, who gave gifts to children, uh, Santa Claus punched Arius in the face. All right, y'all awake this morning? No coffee in here, and y'all are all falling asleep, is that it? There's plenty of coffee on the break, though. Cappadocian Fathers. You've probably not heard of these guys, uh, most of you. These guys were awesome because they took what Athanasius did and wrote and taught, and they continued the work. And they had influence in Constantinople. They had influence with the emperors that ruled the East. And so they could then go and preach and teach the truth to people higher up in the government, uh, people who would eventually accept the truth of uh, Christ and his deity. And then Arianism would start to be defeated in that way. So Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. Basil of Caesarea, or Basil, if you want to be more accurate. I just call him after the herb. Is, it, is Basil an herb? Basil. Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. These are three Christian leaders. They were instrumental in reclaiming many who had been impacted by Arianism. They ministered in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where Arianism had continued to spread even after the Council of Nicaea. That's sort of what's ironic, is the Council of Nicaea happens in Asia Minor, right near Constantinople, right near the capital of the empire. And it's still the Council of Nicaea, even though they agree that the Bible teaches Christ's deity is present right there in Scripture and he truly is the Son of God, it doesn't have the kind of impact that we often think today. It does later, but not during the lifetime of the men who were at the council. They all went home to their churches and the next generation was Arian. So the first man, the first of the three Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Basil of Caesarea. He was an elder in 364, became an elder presbyter, 
And then he succeeded Eusebius as bishop of Caesarea. This is Caesarea Philippi. Um, there's a lot of Caesareas named after Caesar. A lot of Caesareas. Caesarea Maritima is the one often mentioned in the New Testament. This is Caesarea Philippi, though. And in the spring of 370, he becomes the head over the church there, the bishop. He started a monastery there. We'll talk later about monasticism. We need to understand monasticism as Protestants. We often think, oh, that'd be wonderful. You just go hang out all day, you know, go outside, pick a few strawberries, you know, and uh, spend time with God all day long. So Protestants now are getting drawn back into wanting to be monks and nuns and stuff. So I'm going to do a whole class, maybe two, just on the monastic movement and how it got started. Uh, So what guys were doing is, if you're a bishop of a church, you would then start a monastery next to it where the monks could join and copy manuscripts and and study the Bible and things. Um, He also started hospitals, hostels that he founded, places where people could stay as they were traveling, Christians and such. And he paid for that. He had some money, so he paid for that to help the sick and needy. Uh, He took a firm stand against a state-supported Aryan party. The government was Aryan, is what what the author is saying here that I'm quoting. He wrote several works to oppose their errors. His most important writing was on the Holy Spirit. On the Holy Spirit. Not because it was against Arianism. He did write some things against Arianism. But because it's the first theological book just on the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's not a lot of books. You can't just go to the bookstore in your church and buy a systematic theology. They were first being written during the early church period. So on the Holy Spirit was a great work because it clearly said, look, not only is Jesus God, but the Holy Spirit is God. Because after the Arian controversy, people started attacking the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Basil, he gave more precise meanings to the terms used in talking about the Trinity. So Trinity had been around, but these definitions have to be refined. They have to be worked out. And so Basil paved the way for the work of a later council, the Council of Constantinople in 381. He's the first to fix the accepted formula for the Trinity. Who's the first guy to come up with the word and start using it in Latin? Y'all remember? Quiz time again. The, the first Latin father? Tertullian. Tertullian. Tertullian says, oh, three, trinity, triunity in Latin. Trinity means triunity. But again, the definition is a little vague until Basil. And Basil says, one substance, three persons. Now, we don't say it quite like that. But uh, one substance, one usia, one nature, one essence. Three persons. Today we just say one God, three persons. Uh, But that formula was important because if you were having members join your church and someone said, uh, yeah, I believe in the Trinity, then you would then say, do you believe in one substance and three persons? One God, three persons. And you would know real quick if they were an Arian or not. All right, long quote. I'll just read it to you here. Um, It's important to read what these people actually wrote, not just to study them, but to read a bit of what they wrote. And here's what he said on the Holy Spirit. Let us then examine the points one by one. He, the Holy Spirit, is good by nature, in the same way as the Father is good and the Son is good. So he's trying to prove here that the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is God, the same substance. Uh, The creature, on the other hand, shares in goodness by choosing the good. That's us, the creature, the creation. He knows, the Holy Spirit knows, the deep things of God. The creature, by contrast, receives the manifestation of ineffable things through the Spirit. He quickens together with God, who produces and preserves all things alive, together with the Son, who gives life. And so he's just quoting from the Bible. He's doing theology here. Uh, He, the Holy Spirit, that raised Christ from the dead, it is said, shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwells in you. And again, my sheep hear my voice, and I give unto them eternal life. But Spirit also, it is said, gives life. So he's doing like we do today. If we want to prove the deity of Christ, one of the ways you can do it is say, here's all the things it says about God the Father. Here's all the things it says about uh, God the Son. And they're the same things. 
Well, that's what he's doing here with the Holy Spirit. And again, the Spirit, it is said, is life because of righteousness. And the Lord bears witness that it is a Spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. How then shall we alienate the Spirit from his quickening power and make him belong to lifeless nature? So people were teaching that the Spirit, and this is still somewhat uh, common today, that the Spirit is a force. You know, it's the force that holds the universe together. It's God's energy that's out there. It's this spiritual thing that God created. And even in Basil's day, people were saying that. And he's saying, that doesn't work. Because only God could quicken somebody. Only God could regenerate a person. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Who is so contentious and who is utterly without the heavenly gift and unfed by God's good words. Who is so devoid of part and lot and eternal hopes as to sever the spirit from the Godhead and rank him with the creature. So here's Basil getting a little riled up. You know, he's saying, who could be so stupid to read the Bible and say, the Holy Spirit's not God, right? It's not just guys like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul that make everybody mad these days, right? All theologians throughout church history have made somebody mad. It's like Steve Lawson says on the, the Puritan documentary. He says, the problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore because they don't say anything that's challenging. Nobody's mad at pastors and theologians today because they just say nice things and things that make everybody happy well back then you would die for what you said if the wrong person got a hold of you and it's similar today in many places but certainly you can be um what is it called canceled today if you say the wrong thing if you say the wrong teaching according to culture but even guys like basil were um yeah, they were made fun of. Guys like Athanasius were called names. Next guy, Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa. And all these guys knew each other. Two of them were, were brothers. So Gregory of Nyssa and Basil were brothers. They all kind of grew up in the same area. They were friends. So Gregory of Nyssa was primarily a scholar. So this is the academic of the three. He's all about writing. The problem is some of his writings go very mystical and very monastic. He likes to talk about how godly it is to be a monk, be in a monastery, live the ascetic life. Also a problem with Gregory of Nyssa is he's very influenced by philosophy. Philosophy can be used uh, if understood rightly. You can uh, then learn more about man and the world and where we get all of our bad thinking from. But the problem is if you try to bring it in and add it to Scripture, it's going to take you off the wrong path like it did with Origen. And so some of that happened with Gregory of Nyssa. Not as bad as Origen, but he wants to bring in Greek philosophy. Uh, under his brother's inspiration, his brother was Basil. In the 360s, he turned to religious studies. So he's a Christian, but he starts down the path of sort of studying philosophy and wanting to be a teacher. And uh, Basil says, hey, why don't you direct all that energy towards more theological studies and writings? So in 372, he gets made the bishop of his hometown, Nyssa, uh, a small city in the new province of Cappadocia, Secunda. So again, um, Asia Minor, but this would be in the, what is that, southeast portion. Um, in 375, somebody doesn't like him, so they say, look, you're not administering the church very well. And the governor is the guy who accused him of that. So if you want to get a guy kicked out, you just say, hey, this guy's not handling money right. This guy's not doing the right thing in his church. So the emperor, Valens, who's an Arian, starts removing people from churches. And he gets pointed out as a bad bishop. He gets kicked out of the church, or at least accused of it. Um, in 376, he officially gets uh, kicked out by other bishops and banished. Probably Arian bishops. They get together and they officially throw him out. But when Valens dies in 378, um, his congregation welcomed him back. So the people loved him. But the other bishops in the area kicked him out. Because the emperor didn't like him. The governor didn't like him. This is kind of one of the problems with the more denominational view. Somebody can just come and kick out your elders of your church, from outside your church, and some other place. 
So here's Gregory of Nyssa. Even though he started out as more of a philosopher, he does write some good things. And here he's writing on the Trinity. Uh, They charge us, the enemies of the truth, they charge us with preaching three gods. And din into the ears of the multitude this slander. Din is just murmur and, and say a lot of words against them. Which they never rest from maintaining persuasively. Then truth fights on our side. For we show both publicly to all men and privately to those who converse with us. That we anathematize, that's excommunicate, any man who says that there are three gods. That would not be scriptural. That would not be true. And so we excommunicate people who don't believe the truth. And hold him to be not even a Christian. Then as soon as they hear this, they find Sibelius a handy weapon against us. So this is about what people often do. They reject the truth and then they turn around and accuse you of being heretical. And so what they would say is, oh, you believe in three? You believe in three gods. That's Sibelianism. That's modalism. That's one of the heresies we studied. And so they they use Sibelius as a handy weapon against the, the people preaching the truth. And the plague that he spread is the subject of continual attacks upon us. Now they charge us with innovation. And they, they say uh, the Cappadocian fathers are making things up, making up theology, not in the Bible. And frame their complaint against us in this way. They allege that while we confess three persons, we say that there is one goodness and one power and one Godhead. And in this assertion, they do not go, be, they do not go beyond the truth, for we do say so. So he is saying three persons, one Godhead. That's biblical. The problem is, people won't leave that alone. If they're heretics, they challenge that. Oh, you believe in three gods. Even today, you meet a person who's non-Trinitarian. Oh, you believe in three gods. Show me in the Bible where there's three gods. And so you'll show them the truth of the Trinity. Oh, no, you're saying there's three gods. So it's just this word game back and forth. But the ground of their complaint is that their custom does not admit this. And Scripture does not support it. What then is our reply? We do not think it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and rule of sound doctrine. So they're saying, look, this is what we've always believed. Arianism, you know, it's what we've always believed. It goes back 100 years to Arius, and they would even say further back. And that's our custom. And he says, for if custom is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. So you ever argue with a Roman Catholic, and they say, we have church tradition, and then you if you try to bring up the reformers, you can say, well, we have John Calvin and we have Martin Luther. What does it matter? It's just tradition against tradition, right? He says, look, if you want to bring out your tradition, we can bring out our tradition. It goes all the way back to the apostles. But if they reject that, he says, we are not bound to follow theirs. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire. Who decides which tradition is right? Who decides which theology is right? He says, the Bible the scripture. That's the umpire of this debate. And the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas, whose theology are found to agree with the divine words. So very early on, we see this idea, look, go to scripture. If you have a question about what theology is right, compare it to the Bible. The Bible is the umpire on that. All right, the last one, not one of the two brothers, but a friend. Gregory of Nazianzus. It's kind of a cool name, Nazianzus. Um, he was the younger, and he also lived the longest in, in chronological time. He received a uh, classical as well as a religious education. That just meant he studied the Greeks and the philosophers of uh, the early Greeks and, and even the Roman philosophers. Um, but he also had a religious education. He studied first at Caesarea, the provincial capital at least briefly at Alexandria, and finally at Athens. And uh, this is where an emperor we'll look at later, Julian the Apostate, was a student at the time. So he actually knows the guy who's going to be the first pagan emperor after all these Christian emperors. Um, He was a close friend of Basil the Great, his fellow student and later Bishop of Caesarea. And then his public speech at Basil's death in 379, he gave a vivid description of student life. Of the period, so you can kind of see what seminary looked like in uh, those days, based on what he said about Basil. And 362, Gregory accepted ordination to the ministry to assist his father, who was the bishop of Nazianzus. So here's a guy 
Uh, he's been studying. He knows all the important people. They're his friends of the, at least, theological group, uh, true theological orthodox group. And he becomes an assistant to his father. Now, for the next 10 years, he worked at this little village or town, Nanzianzas, supporting Basil in the latter's fight against Aryan rivals and the emperor. So the emperor is Aryan. Everybody's Aryan, even after um, Athanasius and uh, not everybody, but the majority, let's say. So Gregory here is helping Basil. Basil's the main guy. He's the guy fighting the fight. And Gregory of Nanzianzas is coming along, writing volumes of stuff to help him. After Basil died in 379, Gregory now becomes the main spokesman in Asia Minor for Nicene theology. That's true biblical theology on the deity of Christ and the Trinity. Uh, he's invited later to take charge of the Nicene congregation at Constantinople, a city torn by sectarian strife. So let's stop there. We have Constantinople, the capital, the Christian city, huge walls, big churches, different churches. And notice it says the Nicene congregation. So you're already seeing here we have two different types of churches. When you go into Constantinople, you can go to the Nicene congregation, the one that accepts the Trinity, the one that accepts Christ as the Son of God. Or you can go down the street to the Aryan church, the one that denies the Trinity and denies that Christ is the Son of God. So Gregory's asked to take over the Nicene one. That's the, the true biblical one in Constantinople. Um, he's famous for his deep knowledge of Scripture. I mean, this is an academic guy, a scholarly guy. He likes to just sit and study the Word. Among his hearers at Constantinople was the biblical scholar Jerome. We don't want to call him a saint. See my sermon later on saint uh, this morning. I just, I'm copying from my seminary notes here. I don't know why they have Saint Jerome. Who gained a greater understanding of the Greek scriptures from Gregory. So Jerome's going to be key later in translating the Bible into Latin. He learned under this guy Gregory of Nanzianzas. Uh, Gregory was present at the start of the Council of Constantinople in 381, but later retired from Constantinople due to all the political fighting about his position there. So here's what's going on. You've got two different Christians, two different types of Christians in Constantinople. You've got the true believers who believe the truth about Christ and the Trinity, and you've got these heretics who started their own church. And there's all this fighting. There's even fighting in the streets. And you would think the Council of Nicaea would have settled it for them. But they're trying to get around the wording. They're trying to squeeze in their own thoughts. So this later council, the one called the Council of Constantinople, is going to help clarify even more. And of the three Cappadocian fathers, this is the only guy that lived long enough to be there. And they run him out because, you know, he's a pastor in the city. He's got too much influence. And he just said, I'll step back because of all this fighting. In his own words on the deity of Christ. For we have learnt to believe in and to teach the deity of the Son from their great and lofty utterances. And what utterances are these? These. God, the Word. He that was in the beginning and with the beginning and the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. So he quotes John 1.1. 1, 1, and with thee is the beginning. Psalm 110.3. And he who calls her the beginning from generations. Isaiah 61.4. So he's just quoting. Look at all these quotes in the Bible. John 1.18. John 7, 12, John 9, 5, John 14, 6. This tells us that the Bible is very accessible by this time. Lots of people have it, the New Testament and the Old Testament. It wasn't that way in the first and second century. By the time we get here to the 300s, these guys could take the Bible and put their theological arguments into their books and cite Scripture. So the effulgence, the impress, the image, the seal. Who be, so he's just saying different words uh, for Christ. Who being the effulgence of his glory and the impress of his essence. Hebrews 1.3. The image of his goodness. Uh, John 6.27. He just goes on. Genesis, Psalms, Revelation. Uh, skipping down here near the end. For their perfection is not affected by additions. There never was a time when he was without the word. 
or when he was not the father, or when he was not true, or not wise, or not powerful, or devoid of life, or of splendor, or of goodness. So what's going on with these three fathers? Well, they're working out the language that we need to use, the language that's closest to the Bible. And that gets refined over and over. So today we're blessed. We can just go buy a theology book, and we can read a very clear definition of the Trinity. They're working out the language we need to use about the Trinity, about the Son of God, and about the Holy Spirit. And so you might say, well, we have the Bible. Why do we need theology? Why do we need theology? Anybody got some answers on that? Why do you need John MacArthur's biblical doctrine or you know, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology? Why is that important? Why do you care what these guys even said? Let's hear some answers on that. Give me time to get a drink. What's that? It's a guide. Helps us. What else? Hmm? You got to speak up in this big cavern here. Why do we need theology, young people? Why is it important, Amy? Theology. Right, it's organized. Because look, where are these verses from that he's quoting? From Genesis to Revelation. They're all verses talking about something similar. The deity of Christ or the Father or the Holy Spirit. But you've got to take those and now put them together and then state something that they teach. That's theology. It's taking what the whole Bible says about a topic and then defining that topic or defining that word or defining that belief and so if it wasn't for men like this we'd still be confused on how to actually describe the trinity i mean it's already hard enough we asked one of our uh, members our soon-to-be members in the membership interview they were wanting a hard question so we said define the trinity and he did pretty good i mean he went on for like five minutes trying to say what it was and what it wasn't Where do we get that language? We get that language from guys like this who worked hard to describe the Trinity. Any questions on any of those guys? So we're going back west. We've been in the east, Athanasius. We've been with the three Cappadocian fathers. Now we come to Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose is famous for many things. Um, He's born in Trier, which is a a large city in the north. It's close to the German border, but it's where many of the emperors would spend their time in this uh, large city. Today it's in, yeah, it's in Germany um, today. It was called Gaul back then. Um, Ambrose dies in 397. He practiced in the Roman law court, so he's a lawyer. And in 370, he becomes the governor of a certain area, province. So here's a guy with, really hardly any theological training. I'm sure he had some on his own. He had been a Christian for some time. But he doesn't come from all the theological circles like we've been talking about. In 374, he became bishop of Milan. He did not seek to be nominated as a bishop, but was simply trying to arbitrate the process of finding a new one. The people, when they couldn't agree on anyone else, asked Ambrose to take the position. So they don't have a pastor, and they get a little committee together. You've got to be careful if you're over on something like this, right? And uh, they can't agree on who they're going to ask to come be their pastor. Hey, Ambrose, you're pretty well-spoken. You speak out better than anybody in this group. Why don't you take it on? Why don't you become our bishop? So he does. He takes it on. Now, the important thing about Milan is it's where the emperor often visits when he comes to Italy. So the emperor from the east, Theodosius, will even come to Milan. Don't, you don't want to go to Rome. It smells, disease. It's where all the crowds are, the mobs, the riots. But Milan, that's quiet. That's peaceful. So the emperors built a palace there. And all of their government in the west was often located there in Milan at this time. So he's going to be pretty prominent with the high ups in government. At this time, he was uh, baptized. So he hadn't gotten baptized until he gets nominated to be the pastor. That's very interesting. Suddenly we've got to ordain this guy. Nobody's ever laid hands on him. So we've got eight days. We've got to baptize him, lay hands on him, and now he can be the bishop. 
Uh, then he devoted himself to study theology. Not the best way to go about selecting your teaching pastor. Appoint him, hire him, and then he gets baptized, ordained, and starts studying theology. But he is responsible, partly, for the conversion of Augustine. So we'll get to this later. But he's such a popular preacher of his day that even the pagans would come and listen to him just to hear him speak. And a man like Augustine will be converted partly through uh, Ambrose's preaching. He was a great preacher. He spoke to the people, probably because he wasn't theologically trained. He was a, a staunch upholder of orthodoxy. He did not tolerate the Arians at all. Most of his writings were defenses of uh, how Christians should behave, ethics, and morality. And they were against pagans and Arians. So he wasn't just fighting the pagans theologically, but he also had these Arians in his own city, Milan, that had a church right down the road. And you couldn't just tell the emperor, get rid of those. Wouldn't be the godly thing to do anyway. But the emperor was often in support of the Arians. So most of Ambrose's writings were defending Christianity against pagans and Arians. The rest of his writings were sermons on instructions given to candidate for baptism and others. I've been listening to a history book on this time period, and uh, the Arians wanted to build a new church building in Milan, a bigger one, because they were so popular, they needed a bigger space. And so he protests, he goes to the emperor, he says, this is horrible, don't do this, don't build it. And I don't think it ever got built, because he was protesting against the Arians. He advocated for separation of church and state. So even though he would protest the emperor to not allow certain things, he really wanted more separation. And he wanted to stand against the influence of the government in the church. The emperor had great control after Constantine over the church. The emperor could call councils, theological councils. He could tell churches that they could exist or could not exist in a certain town. And Ambrose didn't like that. He said, look, Christians and the leaders of churches ought to make those decisions, not the emperor. He also wrote some hymns in Latin. And many even say what's later called the Athanasian Creed. They say that Ambrose wrote it. It's pretty clear Athanasius didn't write it. But it is very much what Athanasius believed. It's just thought that Ambrose later wrote it. I'll tell you a quick story. And then I'll read the quotes and we'll probably finish with Ambrose. Um, the emperor Theodosius had put down a rebellion. I think it was in Thessalonica. And uh, the city had rebelled against Rome. had rebelled against the empire. So what would happen is the emperor would take his troops there. And then they would just smash the rebellion. Well, in that smashing of the rebellion, he killed about 10,000 people. And that was pretty much overdoing it by everybody's standards of that day. And so when he comes back to Milan, Ambrose says, you must repent. And so for the first time, a Christian leader is telling the emperor he must do something. He must submit to God by repenting and kneel before Ambrose and walk up the steps to the church on his knees. And that will show his repentance. This had never been done before. I mean, that takes a lot of guts even for Ambrose to say you must repent of killing 10,000 and it wasn't as if all 10,000 were rebelling you know there's there's a thousand people rebelling in the city he goes in and wipes out 10,000 and he's a Christian Theodosius is a Christian why are you doing this you're a Christian I'm your pastor when you come to this town I'm your pastor you need to repent you know what Theodosius does he gets on his knees and crawls up the stairs to show his repentance and some say he was even in tears. So for the first time, you see the power of a church leader over his parishioner, in a sense, but especially over the government leader, the emperor. Now, that's good and bad. Good in that, yeah, I mean, just because you're the emperor, just because you're the president of the United States doesn't mean that you can just do what you want and not be um, admonished by your pastor. But at the same time, Later, the medieval Catholics are going to say, look, remember Ambrose told the emperor what to do? Now we're going to tell the emperor what to do. The Pope's going to tell the emperor 
what to do. So let's read from Ambrose here in his own words. Now this is the declaration of our faith. That we say that God is one, neither dividing his son from him, as do the heathen, nor denying with the Jews that he was begotten of the Father before all worlds, afterwards born of the virgin, nor yet like Sabellius, that's the modalist, confounding the Father with the word, and so maintaining that Father and Son are one and the same person. Nor again, as do Photinus, another false teacher, who holds that the Son first came into existence in the virgin's womb. Nor believing with Arius and a number of diverse powers, and so like the benighted heathen, making out more than one God. For it is written, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God. So the Arians of Ambrose's day were saying, Oh yeah, there's this man, Jesus, who was elevated to God. And we have more than one God. And Ambrose says, Look, you're just like the pagans if you say that. Oh, there's a lot to read here. Can you read that? It's kind of small, isn't it? If then God is one, one is the name, one is the power of the Trinity. Christ himself indeed saith, Go ye, baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A great text on the Trinity right there. In the name, mark you, not in the names. This is still an argument used by us today when we want to show somebody the Trinity. Look, Matthew 28, 19, names three persons, but it says the name singular. One name, three persons. He's using this in the 300s. And he goes on to say, We are that you may recognize Father and Son, for as much as the perfect Father is believed to have begotten the perfect Son, and the Father and the Son are one, not by confusion of person, but by unity of nature. We say then that there is one God, not two or three gods, this being the error into which the impious heresy of the Arians doth run with its blasphemies. So they're right over there, you know, they're right down the street. And he's like, these Arians are blasphemous. For it says that there are three gods, and that it divides the Godhead of the Trinity, whereas the Lord, in saying, go baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hath shown that the Trinity is of one power. We confess Father, Son, and Spirit, understanding in a perfect Trinity, both fullness of divinity and unity of power. So if you were looking for a true church, you would go to his church, And you would hear this being preached. And if you knew theology very well, you would say, this is a true church. It matches what the Bible says. All right, any questions? We won't start Jerome. Questions about all this interesting Nicene theology. I think we need to realize there's never been a time in church history where there weren't heresies where there weren't false Christians attacking the true church. And I don't mean physically attacking, but but spiritually attacking, trying to draw away Christians to their belief. There's never been a time. There wasn't a golden age. Later we'll get to the Puritan era. And the Puritans pretty much take over England. And they call it the golden age of Puritanism. But there's still bad teaching. There's still false teaching. There's never been a time where the church can just sit back, not worry about theology. There's never been a time where they don't name names. You know, that's kind of a no-no today. You're not supposed to name false teachers from the pulpit. You're not supposed to say, watch out for Joyce Meyer. Because that offends people. I actually had that happen once. Somebody brought a visitor. Maybe it was their parent. And I said, uh, you know, Joel Osteen's wrong on this. And Joyce Meyer, she's a false teacher. And I think I was actually talking about the trinity and uh, they told me afterwards they said my parent was really offended at that they read joe olstein and joyce meyer and i said well that's not my intent to offend but people need to know names i'm preaching to my congregation and they need to know these false teachers out there some of them are new believers in our church and they need to know i don't spend too much time on those guys but uh, even Ambrose was talking about names in his day, Sibelius, Arian, Photinus, different names like that. Questions? Or do you want me to ask you guys questions? Do you want me to start asking uh, quiz questions? Like I did Amy? All right, so my favorite Athanasius, uh, up until Augustine. We'll get to Augustine. 
I think Augustine is my favorite early church father. Early church father from the time of the apostles till 500 AD. That's the early church period. My favorite's Augustine. I'll tell you why next week. But Athanasius is pretty courageous. Augustine, he's, he's sitting pretty. He's, he's got uh, everybody agreeing with him on most things, except for Pelagius. And we'll get to that. But Athanasius is against the whole Roman Empire, and he's getting kicked out of his church every other year, just about. How would you stand up to that? You know, if, if you had to leave your home, leave your city, because you believe the truth, would you be able to do that? You know, would you have to go out in West Texas and live in a cave for a couple of years just because you believe the truth? Would you do that? Athanasius did, and it's because of him. God used him that we have the truth prevail. All right, if you have no questions, I better close up here. Lord, I do thank you for our morning, our study. Uh, sometimes history can seem a bit um, dull as we read some of this older language, as we consider just real briefly the lives of these men. But help us to see how important it was. Help us to see how vital it is that truth is carried from one generation to the next. Help us to train up Christians here and our children here so that they don't believe these errors, so that they stand for truth like Athanasius, so that they proclaim the one true God and three persons and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.